I'd say to, to leaders, it just takes long, intentional work, which is very, very sophisticated. With DEI, you need your leaders, your people managers and your ground troops all engaged in that journey and all working together. And you nudge people along. You start off by understanding the benefits to the organisation and how it wraps into your strategy. And then you get your leadership on board with that. You engage your marginalised communities and ask them what's really going on, what are the real barriers, and you plug those two together. And then you work out your change programme and you plan it out over one, two, three, four years. And it needs to be intentional, purposeful, and ideally it also needs to have a few KPIs around it. Welcome to the second instalment in this special two-part edition of Beeline with guest Nadia Powell, founding partner of Utopia, an award-winning culture change business that helps clients around the globe create inclusive, healthy and entrepreneurial workplaces. Beeline, a podcast brought to you by the Hive Change Consultancy and hosted by its CEO, Andrew Tilling. We've put together this podcast series and invited some passionate and knowledgeable change makers to help us find the beeline, the simplest way to bridge the gap between pain points and solutions, and to give you the resources to support your leadership journey. Beeline, lead the way. When you look at events and conferences now, you can see that the balancing out is happening. But that means there's less spaces for white straight men and white straight women. But that's OK, because we had 95 percent of the spaces before. And now we can have 50 percent. People of colour are the global majority. And you know, if we can get our head around that fact, they are representing no one represents any community on their own, but the voices of the global majority. And yet if there was one person of colour on a conference or a speaker list or event, it would have been incredibly unusual. So all we're seeing is the world balancing out. But at the same time, I have deep empathy for how hard that is. So I'm kind of beginning to get a sense of a, of a, of a beeline here. Uh-huh. Um, and I think it's it's something along the lines of, well, it's the first two um, recommended or continue watchings that are currently on my Netflix uh, one, I really like a 22 minute comedy, you know, it's yeah. like, it's a nice break. It lifts my mood. I'm in a good place and I've got friends. I'm on series eight. Fantastic. Series eight. They're still making gay jokes. Yes. I watched it again with my daughter for the first time about two, three years ago. And it's, it's so interesting. It's so brilliant with, with the women, the female characters, like the leaps and bounds they made there, like to, to give women the opportunity to be properly funny Monica and um, is you know Rachel really driving their career. Phoebe opting out of everything mm. and doing everything differently. However, people of color in there they only start to appear I think around series five or six, and the outright antagonistic prejudice towards the LGBTQ plus community is really upsetting. And then really obviously is. Joey sexual harassment. There is many scenes that now would be seen as pure play sexual harassment. I think there's a isn't there a wedding scene when um, Ross just, no, Chandler just snogs some random woman because he needs to try mm. and make the vi- And he just literally goes up to strange women and kisses her. And mm. that is so un-okay. Mm. So 
it's really interesting. That was made in the 90s. There are many things now which I watch. I watched Grease the other day. I, I won't be able to watch it again. It's just, it's it's so, again, there's so much sexual harassment in there of an, an outright violent kind. Mm-hmm. Um, so it serves as a very useful reminder to how far we've come sometimes. Really? Um, in, a, in a relatively short period of time. I mean, it's twenty years. We're talking. We're talking about you know long change. You know, talking about long change earlier on. But then you've gone. You're going from friends to uh, option number two: sex education. Yeah, sex education. And you know, so I, I guess I'm kind of I almost want to ask that question. If I'm a leader and I'm looking to ship, if I'm looking at my organisation and I'm thinking it's looking really friends here, I'm having a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, it feels really great, but I am. I, I, I'm, if I think about it, observing a um, a non-inclusion, a a protective kind of a protectionism almost of mm. of people's roles and the way that we do things, um, a lack of um, interest in exploring diverse opinions and viewpoints, which is the foundation of all. Um, you know, innovation and breakthrough is, yeah, is yeah, like exactly. getting that where's that idea going to come from well, if you've got no other perspectives other than the ones that have existed for millennia then you're going to really struggle here you know um but if i'm kind of going from that space into and i want to get to a point where i'm we're able to talk about the difficult stuff openly and yeah. creatively i'm trying to use sex education as a bit of a, of a metaphor here yeah, no, it's a great one. you don't know it, it's yeah. kind of like you know it's very very open um but also um really happy to explore and lean into all those difficult subjects which which frankly uh, you know the upcoming generation are at a lot of you know there seems to be a lot of comfort around speaking is it mm. it's uh you know that there's no issue there it's it's an exploration it's just the changing attitudes that would that, that that feel challenged and are causing the friction but from that space where we're happy to lean into those different things where um the the alternative viewpoint is is relished and cherished and sought mm. out and there is an ease and acceptance of and well-being where where people are open about themselves and, and what matters to them how if how do i get there how do i close that that beeline? yeah i mean there's two answers to that the first answer is actually you've got no choice because to your point obviously millennials are old now i think they're like 37 38 so it's our gen z's that are kind of starting to infiltrate the workplace but um our gen z's 80 percent of gen z's will check out uh, organizations inclusion and diversity policy actions activities before they even think of applying 30 mm. percent of millennials have left jobs because of a lack of inclusion to go to a more inclusive environment that generation will not work in your organization if you don't invest in it it's absolutely critical to their dna and the reason why it is is if we focus on the uk for a moment but these stats are very um, relevant to the whole of europe and the americas 30% of our workforce are neurodivergent. If you're not supporting them, they're going to go elsewhere. In the UK, 18% of the entirety of the country are people of colour. In London, it's 46.2%. Birmingham Slough is over 50%. The whole country is changing. As I said, 25% of us have a disability in some form. LGBTQ, 30% of um, uh, under 25s identify as queer in some way. So... If you if you don't make these changes, the global um, talent crisis we are experiencing is going to hit your business really hard because you're just they're not going to come to you. 
they're going to choose places which have what they feel is an environment which is safe and inclusive for them and if they are talented they can make the choices like it's not like there's a shortage of jobs in certain in certain um, skills, especially in creative industries, technology, data insights, AI, engineering, change management, HR, all these areas. They cannot hire the people that they need. It's one of the biggest things that we hear. So the change is going to be forced. Your business will be irrelevant in 10 years if you don't embrace this because it's already happened. Um, it's not like it's, you know, in the 70s. Our society was very different. We were predominantly white. LGBTQ was silenced. So all there were, there was loads of women around and people were like, oh, okay, we better let the women into the jobs because there's 50% of them. We're 50 years on from there and the entire makeup of our country has fundamentally shifted and it's just workplaces that are a little bit left behind. So that's the one thing I say. That's the kind of like the, the, the is that push or pull? It's pretty straightforward. On the other side, I'd say to to leaders it just takes long intentional work which is very very sophisticated just as if you're trying to change your entire when you were trying to digitize organizations and it took a really long time to do that it's the same with DEI you need your leaders your people managers and your your ground troops all engaged in that journey and all working together and you nudge people along you don't just take away the curtain and say we're inclusive now. You start off by understanding the benefits to the organisation and how it wraps into your strategy. And then you get your leadership on board with that and get their build on it. You engage your marginalised communities and ask them what's really going on, what are the real barriers, and you plug those two together. And then you work out your change programme and you plan it out over one, two, three, four years. And it needs to be intentional, purposeful, and ideally it also needs to have a few KPIs around it. I love that because then it's if it's written into the organization. It's not one person trying to lead change or it's a small in. band. That's a great it's analogy. Written it's written who we in. are. Yeah. So then it's going to last longer than you, right? Because this is what we're set to, we've agreed to, and this is this is what we're striving towards. There's something really profound that I recognized in what you said there. And maybe it's worth spending a bit of time on it. You you just said that, I forget what the stat was, but a percentage of us have a disability. It's, 20, it's one in four in the UK. But the key thing there is that you said the word us. And I think there's something really powerful about that. And, you know, as as white male CEO, I think it's probably worth me sitting on that for a minute and just kind of going, you know, if I'm speaking about us as an organization, then I need to recognize that my language needs to be inclusive of all of us. And when it's that we are a diverse team that we have, you know, amongst us, we have, you know, so many different cultural differences. We are neurodivergent as an organization these are these are really important phrases because it's instantly inclusive right yeah and they're there um i think the other two things on that often people who are neurodivergent or disabled don't disclose so a lot of organizations don't even have a handle on how many people are disabled or neurodivergent um and one of the most lovely things is when you start finding people disclosing within their organization because it's a sign that they finally feel safe But the other thing that's really important is 
Um, we are increasingly seeing the power of allyship. So again, working with an organisation at the moment, and they 8% of their staff have a disability. And those people with disabilities are finding it harder in that organisation for lots of complex reasons. But 50% of their staff are really upset about how those 8% are being treated. And it's impacting their belief and understanding in the organisation. So with inclusion and diversity, we tend to focus on, you know, our people of colour aren't being treated well or our disabled people aren't being treated well. We forget that every time someone sees a microaggression or witnesses something against a marginalised group, the allies who witness it, it undermines their belief in the organisation as well because nothing happens, nothing gets resolved. They see the struggles of their colleagues and they don't think it's right either. So we, we, when we're thinking about inclusion and diversity, it's not just about making an inclusive environment for those people who may come from a marginalised identity. It needs to be inclusive for everyone, because if I was working in a large corporation and I saw that a woman of colour in my team was constantly not being heard and constantly having her expertise questioned, which we know is two microaggressions that women of colour consistently receive, that would make me doubt whether I should be in that organisation as well. And I think leaders often have this very narrow view that it only impacts the people that it impacts. It has a huge echo effect as well, um, which, again, is another reason why I think leaders should take it, take it so seriously. You know, the, your workforce is changing. It will drive success. And also, if you don't do it, those people who are witnessing it are going to leave as well. 100%. Um, but then if as a leader, I say but then and then if I'm going to deal with um microaggressions as I witness them you know I want to challenge people because I want to ally right but then what I there's that really difficult point where I could be victimizing somebody or I could be disempowering yeah. somebody by stepping in and trying to fix it because I'm stepping in as the hero making yes, a victim no making hero a behavior yeah so how do I deal with that because that's something really proactive I can do as a leader in an organization if I'm seeing something or anybody in an organization yeah. you know um, if I'm if I'm seeing it, how do I deal with those moments? It's a really good question. And it's really interesting with DEI because people love hearing the big stuff, but they really love hearing the, the pointy practical stuff. And that is one of the areas where people really enjoy it because it gives them the little skills. So there's three things you can do. Everyone often thinks that calling out is the right thing to do. And calling out is I'm in a meeting with you. Blokes keep talking over me and you go, everybody, listen to Nadia. She's trying to speak. Now, I'm a woman in her late 40s um, and I would be really annoyed if you did that because I'm just like, hang on, I can fight my own battles. Don't, you know, hero effect on me. So and you you might you can never know for certain how it's going to land and kind of stepping in in the hero. As soon as you are becoming the centre of it, it's probably not the right thing to do. <laughs> but there are loads of other things you can do. You can go, I'd just love to pause this meeting because I don't feel we're really listening to each other. So you're not saving me. You're calling out the fact that the meeting is not inclusive. That's a brilliant, brilliant thing to do. So you don't have to like save your somebody. You can step back and go, something's not working in this environment and in this moment. You can also call something in and call something in is when after the meeting's finished, you come up to me and you go, Nads, they just kept talking over you. Is there anything I can do to support? And I'd go, do you know what? It'd be great if next time it happens, you just ask everyone to listen to each other. Don't mention my name, but I'd love you to do that. Or I might say, do you know what? Thank you for asking, but I've got it. I'm going to have a word with the guy 
tomorrow because it's really pissing me off. And you, if there was one guy who's a real offender or one woman, you could go up to that person and say, look, I noticed you kept talking over nads. And I just think we, we need to be inclusive and I want this to be a really inclusive meeting. And you're removing the shame then and you're not making yourself the hero. Because I think as soon as you feel like you're having to wade in, then it probably isn't the right thing to do. And then the third thing you can do is something called micro affirmations. And micro affirmations are the opposite of microaggressions. They're positive reinforcement. So again, might be in that meeting. I've spoken and then still no one's listening to me. Um, and you just go, do you know what I loved about our meeting yesterday, earlier on today is that everyone listened to each other. And I'd love to see that behavior today. Or it could be you introduce your pronouns before you speak because, you know, I'm a they them and you want to just support me. Or it could be I come back from maternity leave and you um, instead of going, oh, my God, Nancy, you exhausted like because of having to stay up with kids all the time. Oh, it's a nightmare, isn't it? You go. So glad you're back. I've really missed your opinions and you've brought you bring so much value to this business. So micro affirmations are really positive, reinforcing, inclusive behavior things that you can do. The one thing I will say is sometimes you do need to call it out. And that is if you hear something openly prejudicial in a meeting, because if you don't call it out, everyone will think you'll agree. And that is if you hear someone go, oh, do you know what? That suggestion is just a bit gay. And that's when you go, our values of our business means that that we don't use that kind of language. You don't go, John, we don't say that because, again, it becomes like police. You turn it back into your values or someone might say something openly racist in front of you or openly um, homophobic, whatever it might be. That's the time when you do need to call it out because you need to really make it clear that it's gone outside of a small little behavioural comment and into something that's openly prejudicial. But otherwise, I would always encourage people to call it out in a generic sense, call it in or use micro affirmations to reinforce behavior. And if you do those things and practice them where you feel safe, like I always say, practice with micro affirmations and then maybe practice it with a call it in. And then when you do need to make a call it out, you'll feel confident with it because you'll know what you're doing. Mm, there's so much in there. There's so much power <laughs> in just being with somebody and, and recognizing when someone is being isolated or, yeah, that speaking over, I think, is huge. It's that right to have an opinion. Uh, it, it seems to be assumed by so many people within business that um, I no, it, yeah, thanks for your contribution, but I'm right. And here's why. Or, you know, in fact, I don't even need to give you a why, but I'm not taking your opinion because it hasn't no you know, value. And it may, the, but it makes sense for some people, because if you think about it, our education system, especially the private education system, Again, it was founded two, three hundred years ago, has founded on the predication that you come out of that with intense confidence that your opinion is the right opinion. And you know what? That worked 30, 40 years ago because most businesses was full of men who had all been privately educated. And so they were having these equivalent arguments with each other. We've now got this really diverse world where you and a world that's changing every single minute. It is impossible to be right about anything. Because things, you could have a new war, a global economic crisis, a new technology. The world is more, I mean, VUCA is a joke now. It's kind of gone VUCA. I mean, it's just, so having people who are brought up to believe and have a predication that their opinion is right is just totally irrelevant now. 
And so breaking down those still existing systems in organisations where people understand that what's most important is to be able to listen to all the voices in the room, analyse all the data you're receiving, because every opinion is data. It's not, you know, even if that opinion is really far off to the left, it's really brilliant data. And then together looking at that data and trying to make the best way forward, sense of the best way forward. So I have, again, so much empathy for these people who are typically older, who have been brought up to believe their opinion is right. They're not bad people. It's just that's what they were trained to believe. That's what society trained them to believe. So it's so hard to break that down and change. Um, so, yeah, I have a lot of empathy for it. We have to have patience, but we also have to take them on the journey because otherwise they will be unemployable. And this is one of the things I often say to young people. Like, I can't be bothered with him. He never listens. He never does anything I say. And I'm just like, he's a good he's a good person. He's been trained to behave in this way. It's not his fault. He probably did an MBA at INSEAD in the 90s. That would have trained him to believe that he is now an expert in all things business. So if he does behave that way, we need to try and work out ways to show other ways of doing things. <laughs> oh, I think there's so many people feeling really just put in their place right there. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's important, right? I mean, I, and the, the, I'm feeling a little bit torn because there's a part of me that kind of goes, you said something earlier on that I really like and I speak to the same point. And now I want to add my point to it, but I really want to make it clear that it's feeding <laughs> off your point and I'm not trying to steal your point, right? You but, have uh, made lots of space to me. You do not need to feel anxious about anything at all. Thank you very much. I, it's the um, intelligence isn't how well you argue your point of view. It's how many different points of view you can hold in your mind at the same time. That's how we kind of lead into creative intelligence is how we lean into the importance of diversity, making sure there's a representation in the room of all the diverse stakeholder groups. If you're going to find a solution, which is actually going to gain traction, gain engagement and be delivered because as leaders, we're only effective through the work of other people. So if you want to engage a diverse team, you've got to think diversely. And the only way you can do that is through building empathy with those diverse stakeholder groups. It's is, it's a learned skill. And some people who have kind of been brought up in a diverse environment are used to being curious, asking where necessary, and, and being very accepting and open to, to different perspectives and viewpoints, because it's the only place, way to function and get yourself through school. Yeah. Whereas if you've got people in leadership who do not have that that in itself, I don't want to overuse a term, which is a really important one, but that in itself is a disability in your ability to, to contribute effectively, to in, the, yeah. to to lead lead effectively in the future. In organization. The way yeah. we always reframe it, I mean, point. you do obviously lots of stuff around change, but one of the things we often talk about is when you're trying to drive a change through an organization, as a culture, especially in Anglo-Saxon culture, we don't like dissenters. We just think they're problematic troublemakers. When you're driving change, every single opinion is data. And so those people that you think are being really difficult yes. and putting their fit, feet into the ground, they're actually probably your most important data. It's the same with diversity and inclusion. Everything that someone says at any point, you might hear a very young south asian woman say something in a meeting you're 50 you've been leading a business for years she's 22 and she questions what you have to say 
Now, I've definitely been there. You know, I've been a leader for a really long time and I find it really hard when people question my opinion. No doubt about it, because I go a bit defensive and then I'm a bit like, hang on, I've been doing this for 30 bloody years. Like, just give me a little bit of credit that I know what I'm talking about. That's my instant reaction. Now, if I demonstrate their action, I shut the meeting down. No one's ever going to say anything again. And I've lost all that data. So I've reframed it in my head that every time someone tells me something different to what I want to hear or what I believe, it's data. And I collect that data respectfully. I don't steal other people's data and opinions. And I look at it and I go, OK, Nadia, you think A. And lots of people have said B and C, which is close to you. But you've got three or four people who've said Z. So we really need to dig into the Zs and find out what's going on there. And I might still not agree with them, but I can guarantee what I plan to do is going to diverge because there'll be something in there which is absolutely critical. So if we just reframe the inputs we get as not a criticism or a lack of respect or naivety, which it could be all of those things, of course, but just reframe it as data that can help us make better decisions, it removes all the defensiveness out of the situation so that we can listen, like properly listen. Empathy is having the courage to take the journey to understand how somebody arrived at their ridiculous point of view. Because there'll be genius in there. There's always genius in always. there. Um, always. But it's just so hard to hear it when, like I said, you've been in a position where, you know, people have tended to do what you say quite yeah. a long time it's really hard to pause and I think that's another thing our culture is driven by speed speed is the biggest evil of diversity and you know it comes back to your first question why is it so slow and ultimately everything needs to be slowed down right now we're speeding everything up so we're removing all the nuance all the chance to think is this the right thing or the wrong thing if we just build in a little bit of slowness and then it gives us the chance to hear all that data we're not going to be constantly correcting poor decisions we're going to be making decisions that everyone really believes in so I think the other thing is less speed please in this kind of very speed predicated society we're in at the moment you made me think about you know trying to gain traction on things and you know if you want something to go social what's the fastest way to do it you know make it a nice microaggression or you know something which just splits the crowd and then everyone's going to be angry about that i kind of i like to say to people can we just you know get get engaged and comment on stuff which which is inclusive and you know nice and friendly and, just pause. and positive and just pause yeah there was a really lovely thing shared on social media the other day with this woman who is a muslim and she shared a post about palestinians and i'm not going to go into the debate in any more detail than that because we we know how emotive and sad and difficult it is and someone came back and said i really don't think you're being you're reflecting both opinions you know what happened in israel is horrific and she just responded and said you're right it is it's absolutely horrific and I really feel for your pain. And I also feel for the Palestinians' pain. And I think there's space to hold feelings for both sets of pain. And the woman came back and said, you're so right. Thank you. And you've made me think that too. And they, you can see they just both slowed down and just paused rather than going into the trigger happy space. And she shared this conversation. It made me really tearful at the time because I was just like, if we can all just slow down a little bit and just not try and have an opinion because on some things I can't have an opinion on what's happening um, over in Israel and Palestine at the moment. It's not my place. But I can feel 
what's happening and I can feel for the pain and I can have huge empathy and I can think humanity deserves better. I can think that. I'm not going to have an opinion on the politics, the religion or anything like that, but I can have an opinion on humanity and pain and rights and peace. So for me, I think that is what slowing down helps us do. It helps us see what is actually going on underneath the surface rather than responding to all this kind of noise that's above and you know bringing it back to DEI that's why when things are going slowly in that when things are going really intentionally there's loads of space for pause and dialogue for people to go I feel like I'm being demonized just because I'm a 50 year old white straight man and for us to pause and say we're really sorry you feel that way that is not what we're trying to do you are just as important as anyone else we want you to be able to see your grandchildren on a Friday and work part time we want you to be able to talk about your mental health we want you to share some of the trauma that you've experienced if you slow things down then you will get to the right end. Whereas, as you said, those mandatory boom, one deal and we're done just don't work because we've tried to treat it as a kind of, like you said, tick list. Um, so, yeah, DEI has to be slow, but then I just wish everything would slow down as well. Slow down, allyship. I love the um, call in. Yeah, call. you don't have to call it out. You can call it in. Um bring everything back to values yeah cultural intelligence I know you cultural love that intelligence <laughs> thank you for that one um collective intelligence of yep. seeing alternative viewpoints as data taking pause before we react these are good practical things that i can do right now to improve de and i in my workspace and yep. that is a huge gift Nadia, you've made huge impact, both in business and with Utopia. I've got two questions to close off. Okay. Number one, why Utopia, given that Utopia, just in its very name, seems unreachable? And I think that's a really great question based on what I've just said, because Utopia, as many of you probably know, is a place we aspire to reach, but can never reach. And for me, that is the heart of DEI. We keep aspiring to get there. We never stop. It's slow. It will take time, but we'll probably never, ever get there. And you know what? That's okay because we're never going to have a perfect society. And I think that's a really important context because people will go, well, we still have microaggressions. We've done all this work. We still have microaggressions. We've done all this work and our trans community are unhappy because of this. And my answer is we're never going to have a perfect society. But the fact that those communities are telling you that they're unhappy and they're telling right. you why they're unhappy and you want to do something about it. Well, to me, that's pretty much a perfect society. So that, that's why we called it Utopia. What's the biggest obstacle you've had to overcome in order to make a positive impact? And um, how did you do it? It's so relevant to everything we've spoken about. So um, I'm a woman, come from a working class background. And I, like I said, there's been a lot of trauma in my life. And so I have always identified as a marginalised individual. I've always felt like I'm on the outside. I used to be told I had a chip on my shoulder. And that has been a strong part of how I've navigated the world. Like poor Nadia, it's really tough for her. She's had to work twice as hard. She didn't have the family connections. She doesn't have private money, all these kind of things. So when I first navigated the DEI space, I centred myself in how I viewed the world. And that's a really human thing to do. 
we will often I'll speak to leaders and they'll say, no, we don't have any racism in the organization. I've never seen it. And I'll just be like, well, why would someone be racist to you? <laughs> and no one's going to be racist when you're around. You're the boss. So you're centering your experience of your company as the experience of the company rather than just as an experience as a straight white woman or whatever it might be. And I was doing that as well. And it was only when I did some really deep work with some of my team, with some of the work I was doing, and I had to sit down and look back at my life and go, do you know what? The reason why you got your first job, Media Guardian, 1995, I'm sure many of us are reading the Media Guardian, was because you were a white, straight cis woman. Because I was interviewed by these very posh men who I could tell just kind of liked me. And the reason why you were given equity in one of your jobs was because you were a white, straight cis woman. Yeah, I was really good at my job as well. But I wouldn't have even been given that opportunity if I hadn't been this identity I have. So I had to recalibrate myself to go, in the UK, I am the second most privileged identity. I'm deeply, deeply privileged. So I cannot centre my view on the world as a view on um, inclusion and diversity. So I had to totally reconstruct who I was, how I saw myself and the story I told of my journey through life and really understand that many other people have had things much more difficult than me. Their experience of the world is very different to mine and I can never judge it or understand it, though I can have empathy for it. And to take myself out of the room and out of those situations for the other voices. And it it caused a little bit of a crisis because I was like, I'm not who I thought I was. I thought I was this deeply disadvantaged woman who struggled every step of the way and never been taken seriously. And no one's ever taken a vote of me. And just because I'm really good at my job, I got to where I am today. And I had to go, I'm a deeply privileged individual who was handed loads of things on a silver platter. And yes, I still am really clever and I did really well at my job, but also I was deeply privileged and I had to do that flip on myself in order to be actually a a good leader. And it was hard. It was really hard. So, yeah, that's been the hardest thing I've had to do from a kind of personal leadership perspective. Is it right to say you had to get over yourself? I had to go over myself. I mean, I really, really did. I mean, it's actually it's a great phrase. And no one's ever said that to me before. And I love it. I properly had to get over myself and I had to just accept that my story, which I had as like a Charles Dickens-esque little Dorrit yeah. type story, was actually more the princess and the pea. Like, yeah, I had some hardships along the way, but compared to some people, I had it really bloody lucky. Get over yourself. And my job now is to make space, make as much space as I can make and do as use my privilege to do as much good as I can do. Um, and so that's the kind of recalibration I had to I had to do on my personal personal story Mm. so one of the advantages I have as a woman is because I was from a marginalized group I've had to question myself all my life so Mm. I have a built-in capacity to question myself and the resilience to break myself down because I've had to do it where I see something which I think is really sad and sad I don't mean in a patronizing way is a lot of men do not have that built-in capacity or the resilience to do it because, again, they've been trained to believe that they're the perfect perfect encapsulation of society and that they're right. So when they're told that they're no longer that they're not right, 
they you can see they literally it's just such a big fundamental reshift that no, you're not a CEO of X company because you're a deeply talented individual. Mm. You're a CEO of X company because you're a reasonably talented individual, but actually just because you're a white straight man and went to private school and you're not special, you're not talented, you're not gifted. You're just lucky and privileged. And that's very hard for a lot, for a lot of people to do. Now I could do it, but I think it's because I had a toolkit already because I've been questioned all my life by people like why are you in this room what are you doing here yeah Um, whereas I think some people they just don't have the toolkit so expecting them to do it it's just not fair um yeah at the same time I don't want to be in a room with them but I can't I also cannot expect them to change because you're asking them to fundamentally reappraise their story of their lives and themselves yeah I, I think what feeds into it a little bit around the imposter syndrome but i don't think it's conscious is that i i have to be i have to be right talented and amazing otherwise i lose my social status within the group and therefore i need to exhibit behaviors that demonstrate i am i'm alpha i am dominant i am i'm right i, I know it i'm, I'm right yeah. i am the authority it's often the ego isn't about how great you are it's how how bad you are how poor you are at these things it's that voice which we fight against which often exhibits as behaviors and i think that those it's those insecurities playing out of people and i think that's that's what gets triggered when people feel threatened in those environments yes, you're supposed there's, there's the, my business partner says there's the right kind of bloke mm. and as a ceo there's a very tiny tiny stereotype of what is the right kind of bloke mm. and if you don't fit into that stereotype well, then society would tell you, you're going to fail. Like you're mm. going to fail if you're not the right kind of bloke, if you're not decisive, inspirational, Steve Jobs, black polo neck, telling everybody this is the future. You can't be a CEO. You're yeah. not a CEO. And it's it's horrible. It's horrific. Whereas, again, one of the joys of being female is because we were never allowed to have that stereotype, we don't have the pressure of that stereotype. <laughs> like we're allowed to be messy, vulnerable, chaotic, footsie jobs no then we have to fit the right kind of bloke stereotype we have to be the right kind of woman but pretty much everywhere else we we are given more freedom to be who we are mm. but men really really aren't no, and it's true that's why when you know you know some of my young people are just like i hate him he's such a just like he's been given no choice yeah i loved that angle that he's you been had given on that. No that, choice. Was, that was great empathy from the other side yeah, it's just so interesting. Like, I think, you know, like I said, we can demonize the men, but they're doing the best with what, what with what they've been given. And then obviously some men are able to totally step outside of the stereotype or adopt it when they have to and step, step outside of it. But yeah, it's really hard. And then hopefully there's more space for blokes who aren't the right kind of bloke to come in. Nadia Powell, you're an inspiration. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on Beeline. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute delight. Don't miss the next episode of Beeline when Andrew talks to Justin Tan, coach and consultant, helping individuals and organisations navigate disruptive change. If you're interested to know more or could do with a reminder about today's episode or any of the other episodes in this series of Beeline, I've collated some notes, links and resources for you to explore and download at www.consultthehive.com forward slash Beeline. You've been listening to Beeline. Lead the way.